Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Friday, October the 28th, 2022. Earlier today, uh, we did a show with a very distinguished astronomer, the British astronomer, Martin Rees, best-selling writer, one of the great scientists in the world. He has a new book out, If Science is to Save Us. One of the questions I asked Martin, I've known him over the years, is why he never took an appointment at a university in the United States. He could have picked up the phone and got a professorship anywhere he chose, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, Berkeley. And his response was interesting. He said, well, the reason he'd stayed in the United Kingdom and he doesn't idealize Cambridge University where he spent his life teaching is because there's much less of a radical gulf between what he called the middle classes in the United Kingdom and university teachers in contrast with the United States where he believed and was rather critical that American universities are almost feudal structures existing way above like castles in the air way above ordinary society and ordinary people. This is a theme that we've covered in many different ways in the show over the last few months. We did a, a show with the journalist Nicholas Davidov um, a couple of weeks ago about a, a real crime story in uh, New Haven in, in Connecticut in which um, in his book, it's a wonderful book, The Other Side of Prospect, Davidoff describes the privilege of Yale versus the violence and underprivilege of the streets in New Haven. New Haven is one of those cities uh, that really vividly manifests the contrast between elite universities um, and, uh, and ordinary life. Uh, we did a show last year with the Trinity College academic, Devarian Baldwin, who talks about how universities are what he calls plundering our cities. He has an important new book out in the shadow of the ivory tower, the way in which the universities are essentially colonial powers on cities, appropriating, acquiring the best land and penning everybody else into more and more unpleasant environments. Uh, this is what Matthew Stewart, another recent guest, talks about how 9.9% of Americans and the world are, are running the rest of society. It's not the 0.1 or the 1%. It's the 10% of people, particularly those associated with modern universities. Charlie Eaton, another critic of the modern university, uh, came on the show talking about how ivory tower bankers are plundering our university. Eaton connected the broader neoliberal infrastructure of American capitalism with universities, their financing and their manifestation of power. Um, so many other critics we've had on the show. Michael Sandel, one of Harvard University's great writers and thinkers, ironically enough, and also a great critic of the meritocratic infrastructure at Harvard. Same with Daniel Markovitz, a Yale University, Yale Law School professor and another great critic of meritocracy. Markovitz suggests not only is it making poor people miserable, but even the wealthy, the successful, the meritocratic, so to speak, are miserable too. Uh, all this is brought together 
uh, in a new book by my guest today, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us by Evan Mandry, whose day job is as a professor of criminal justice, appropriately enough, at uh, John Jay College um, in New York. And Evan is joining us from uh, Montclair, New Jersey. I asked him before we went live whether he was closer to Rutgers or Princeton, and he said Rutgers, which is probably appropriate. Evan, uh, welcome. Um, how close are we, do you think, to the aristocratic architecture of, say, pre-French revolutionary France in America? Um, and, and to what extent are the universities the, the heart of the matter, the heart of the problem? Um, I think I quote uh, four of the people you mentioned in your introduction in my book. And I think I've read everything or almost everything that you cited at the uh, outset. So it certainly all resonates with me. And um, what I talk a lot about in terms of aristocracy is not just the reality that um, elite colleges are engines of inequality, meaning they admit overwhelmingly admit rich people and their principal function is keeping rich people rich, but also, and uh, Michael Sandel was, um, he was my professor and I taught for him when I was in school. And um, I discuss his latest book a fair amount in my book. And he's kind of one of my intellectual heroes. Um, but I'll add something that he doesn't say. So the, the construct of meritocracy is enormously destructive because meritocracy is a double-edged sword. So if you say that Harvard and Yale and uh, other elite college students deserve their privilege, it means that my students at CUNY deserve their lack of privilege. There's no way around that. And these are actively made by elite colleges. They don't say we admit the rich and the richest. They say we admit the bright and the brightest. You, you, you talk about um, how elite colleges divide us. Is this a cause or a consequence of the privilege of further education in America? In other words, um, are we already divided and then we end up at Harvard or Yale or John Jay, or does it compound those divisions? I I'm guessing both. It's probably both, but I think where I really differ um, from other people who have written in this space is that I'm holding elite colleges much more accountable in the causal chain. I mean, they would certainly say, uh, they would acknowledge, I think, uh, their administrators would acknowledge the inequities or inequalities at their institutions, but say that they're the result of underlying inequalities in society. And I argue that they're much more drivers of inequality than they like to admit, principally through residential segregation, which is extreme in the United States. Explain and what that means, residential yeah. segregation. Well, um, you know, rich suburbs versus poor suburbs. So, you know, uh, one, one suburb spends $10,000 more per student than its adjacent neighbor. And, and that's because America has a long tradition of local control, both by school boards in terms of the content of education, but also spending. And as I argue in the book, the standard white affluent life course is to live, into the, live in the city until you have kids. And then most people either send their kids to private school or move to an affluent suburb. And they're chasing the narratives that elite colleges choose to value, like excellence in sports and APs and distinguishing extracurriculars. 
you had a wonderful tweet, which I think captured um, the hypocrisy and irony of the situation. You wrote, America's elite colleges and universities are overwhelmingly populated by liberals, and yet they're conservative in every sense of the word. They favor the wealthy, reinforce class hierarchy, and are resistant to change. Please stop sending the money. I want to get to the money side later. But this is the ultimate irony, isn't it, Evan, that these colleges are so pleased with themselves, they don't even recognize how profoundly conservative they are. It, it, it is the irony. I mean, you know, I, I interviewed hundreds of academics and administrators for the book. And there wasn't a single one who was willing to uh, lay any accountability on their individual institution. So they're all very happy to lament the inequities of the system taken as a whole, but they all see their own college or university as an exceptional actor or doing good, um, you know, within the constraints of the system. I mean, even even Sandell, uh, presumably he he's not that short sighted. I didn't. I didn't. I've interviewed Michael for a different piece that I wrote, which was about uh, I taught ethics at uh, Appalachian State University, and we talked about dialoguing. I didn't interview him for this book. Um, I don't know what he would say next time you have him on. I mean, why, why, I you know, Sandale, Markovitz. Uh, I mean, these are personally very nice people, but very nice. Uh, and, and they're wealthy. They do very well for themselves. Why don't they just leave these places? They're so, you know, a place like Harvard or Yale, they're so offensive or Stanford on every level. Why don't people just leave and go somewhere else? Do what you're doing. Go and teach at John Jay or their, their local state university. I mean, you, you know, you, we're both guessing, but we're probably going to make the same guess. Um, I think people are driven much more by status than wealth. Wealth is one way of achieving status. And I think it's very hard for them to sacrifice that status. Well, the, yeah, I mean, I don't want to make this the, the heart of the conversation, but someone like Sandel already has what you call, I call it status, you call it status. I mean, it doesn't make any difference where he teaches. He's still a world famous academic. Of course. And it would be... You know, Paul Krugman moved from Princeton to CUNY. Um, he has the highest status at CUNY. Um, but I think that's a very meaningful type of statement to make. Um, and I don't have a lot of other examples of that. I actually can't come up with a single other one, but must be. Well, Hams, if you got a call from uh, from the law school at Harvard or Yale saying, oh, we love your work. Will you come and teach? I mean, it's an easy answer for me now. I wouldn't even be tempted for a second. I think the harder question would be when I first became an academic almost 25 years ago, would I have been tempted by it? Uh, I, I don't know. I might have been. Um, I didn't completely understand what I was doing when I got into teaching where I teach. My parents are both CUNY graduates. Um, my dad is a was a high school principal and my mom was a middle school Spanish teacher. And they both went to Brooklyn College, which is where they met. And I went to Harvard. Um, I don't think when I began teaching, I knew that I wanted to write and I've always loved teaching, um, but I've definitely changed over the course of my career. Um, I am deeply, deeply invested in the mission of what we do. Um, and I don't think I would love it the same way if I were teaching rich white kids. Evan, what is it about, a, I want to get to the economics of this, and that's the core of your book, but what is it about our culture that so many of us, meaning the coastal elites, the top 10, 15% wealthy people in America, or 
globalized people, well-traveled people, scientists, academics, writers. Why are we so obsessed with wearing on our sleeve, quite literally, where we went to school? Is it the, um, the equivalent of how medieval people wore the gowns of their own particular status group? There seems to be something profoundly medieval something uh, feudal about this new world of, of, of elite universities? Well, it is a type of primitive tribalism and it is a lot of class signaling. Um, I mean, I don't, um, but... Uh, well, you already mentioned you went to Harvard. You dropped that yeah, one. Uh, sorry. Twice. You did, well, three times you mentioned Sandel, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I'm not criticizing you. We all do it. I only don't do it because I got the only fancy college I went to in America, I got thrown out of. So I don't even have a degree. So that's well, good, my for you. Good, for, good for you. Um, you know, I do think, I mean, uh, without recounting the conversation, I'm very conscious of any instance in which I do this. I mean, there's, I think, well, it's interesting. I think we should psychoanalyze why I did it because <laughs> I'm, I'm aware of the conflicting motivations. Um, I don't think that it suggests anything particularly uh, virtuous or worthy about me. And certainly after, you know, 23 years teaching where I teach, uh, the students I teach are every bit as hardworking and smart and deserving. Um, I do think, I mean, I live in society and I'm aware of how hard it is for people to take you seriously and credibly and you know, why did I tell you that uh, I know Michael Sandel? Um, maybe it gives, feels like it gives me a sense of um, cre credibility with the audience. It's very, very hard to resist doing all that. You're fair to point it out. Um, are you, is your, is your analysis basically economic? You, you write that um, uh, Ivy League colleges keep rich kids rich. We've done a lot of shows also on class war. I'm sure you're familiar with some of these writers and books. Michael Lind, for example, who has a really interesting book about the new class war, saving democracy from the managerial elite, the very managerial elite, of course, who dominate these fancy universities. Are you a class war analyst? Is that the core of your argument, that there's some sort of almost in a Marxist way, a, a consciousness about these people that they main, that they build these institutions which make them rich and then they build in a, in a kind of Gramscian way ideology around those institutions? Um, I think the basic answer is yes. I won't make the mistake again of telling you who I know or who I don't know. Oh, no, do it, do it, do it. I don't want to repress you, Evan. I'm, 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 I wasn't I'm, critical. I would have done. No, that. I don't think you were. I think it's. I, I think it's totally fair. Here's this Actually, guy. Yeah, as it happens, if I want to drop names, my first wife was taught by Michael Sandow. I don't know if she had a crush on him, but uh, she was at the law school at Harvard. So, my only association with these fancy universities is that both of my wives, of, of one went to Harvard and one went to Stanford. That's as close as I can get. He's very crushworthy. He's a lovable guy. Um, my wife's a sociologist. Um, my wife describes me as a class warrior. Um, I don't know if I always was a class warrior. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people. I interviewed a lot of students for the book, some students who um, went to these colleges. And it's interesting, even when I talk to students of color, 
they, like I, often in retrospect, reconceptualize their experiences in college, which are always mixed and sometimes predominantly negative in class terms. And there is, I very, I think a lot about Marx and mystification. There is something that's going on. Actually, I talk about Bordeaux a lot in the book, if you want um, some inaccessible references for your audience, but um, Bordeaux has this concept of habitus, which is really yeah. a way of being. We have a um, very Ivy League uh, audience, Evan. They've all heard of Pierre Bourdieu. So don't worry about that one. <laughs> well, that's, I assume you didn't know him either. You're not going to name drop him, are you? <laughs> no, I never I never had a, I never had a croissant with him or anything. Um, but I, I do think that there is a way of being. Um, that elite colleges are uh, bestowing or uh, enculturing or indoctrinating students with. And I think it's palpable um, if you move through different strata of society, you, you, you feel it. Um, and I was just talking with my students the other day. Um, someone had spoken at a donor event for CUNY's Honor College, and she was talking about how uncomfortable she felt. And I was saying how uncomfortable I felt talking to John Jay, which has basically no endowment, our board of trustees, but our board of trustees has two billionaires on it. And boy, they did not like um, the, they're okay with the more resources for poor people, but they don't like the uh, rich people are going to have to take a little bit less part of my argument. And they really kind of cast me out in some not so subtle ways. And um, I mean, I think, you know, it, it is Marx. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things that interests me about some of the analysis you made on the book is that 63% um, of Harvard's 2020 graduates went into finance, according to your, um, according to your book, and 60% of John Jay students work for the government. What do the other forty percent of Harvard people do? They're from wealthy families. Do they do? I, I, my, my guess would have been that a lot of the Harvard people would have gone into publishing um, and startups and and stuff that you have to be rich to be able to afford. Or, so I or make that internships. I make that argument in the context of you referenced Charlie Eaton earlier, and Charlie Eaton's a sociologist, and he yeah, his work's very good, and I really. Great. And he values the um, the tax break that elite colleges receive or tax breaks at about $20 billion a year. So we're making a $20 billion investment in these institutions. And, you know, I argue that taxpayers have a right to some good in return. What is the good that they do? And I'm like, well, one thing they could do is let in a socioeconomically diverse group of people. They don't do that. They can let in a racially diverse group of people and promote them you know, promote some upward mobility. And they don't really do that with a handful of exceptions, or they could make do-gooders and they do the opposite. But, you know, I'm like you, you would think, you know, because I'm somebody who's the only status that I'm really kind of interested in is influence, intellectual influence, right? And so I'm surprised that other people don't crave the same thing. Obviously, I'm presuming you must, or you wouldn't be doing this type of thing. Um, but there, that's not, and they're, um, there's a wonderful sociologist named Amy Binder, who I interview at length and discuss in the book. And, and she argues 
that when they come to college, they're actually kind of blank slates or near blank slates. They really don't know what they want to do. Right, they've all been overschooled and obsessed with the, taking these dumb quantitative tests and being schooled in writing cheesy essays about their lives. Yep. I mean, I got kids and we all go through the same thing. I, I just reread uh, re uh, Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, which is mm. a wonderful book much of it about life in Princeton just right. uh, in 1917, 1918, just as America got into the war, uh, a book that is sh uh, is, 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 is not a, a shame to boast of a certain kind of privilege. I wonder how much has changed since 1917. I mean, the Princeton today is different in terms of the focus, but it's probably just as privileged, isn't it? Well, I'm going to argue in a particular way that it's worse um, from what I've read and what I imagine that if we were having this conversation in 1920 via whatever medium we could have had it, that we would have said, well, Princeton's just a school for the rich. Um, Harvard's just a right. white, for white privileged boys and a few Jews. And that was it. Right. Of course, there wouldn't have been any pretense that they were doing good. Very few Jews. Well, and um you know, today, that's not the story that they tell. The story that they tell is that they're do-gooders, and, and it's BS. Yeah, it, it really is it's astonishing. I mean, you you call this the uh, the university of hypocrisy. It's almost at the hip, 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 hypocritical level of America in the 19th century. We, we did a show on the China question and the immigration. Um, it's at the level of 19th century hypocrisy about America as a democracy, whilst it maintained the institution of slavery. That's right. That's right. And I, I think that, you know, if you asked me what really animated me to do this is I, I can't stand the hypocrisy of pretending that things are other than they are, because the story that they tell about the students I teach who are all poor and almost none of whom are white is that they don't work as hard as everybody else or that they drink. And, and it's the opposite of the truth. It's the rich white kids who don't work as hard uh, and drink. And obviously I'm, you know, I'm making. Are, are we preoccupied with, I mean, you know, the, the racial piety is of course, what defines places like Princeton these days. I mean, there are African-American kids and Hispanic kids who go to Harvard and Yale and Princeton, and they simply become part of the elite. Isn't this ultimately a story of class rather than race? Of course, uh, the, the majority of the dominant class are white, but it doesn't really make any difference whether you're part of the black upper class or the white upper class. The, the, the defining thing is that you're part of the upper class if you happen to go to one of these colleges. I mean, my book is overwhelmingly about class. Um, I do think race and class intersect in a way that... Yeah, I mean, that's more... given. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that. But we're preoccupied in America, and there are historic and cultural reasons for this and perhaps economic reasons. We're preoccupied with race and cultural identity. And class analysis, as Michael Lynn, the new remind us, is still beyond the pale because it's dangerous, because it, it's not reassuring. Right. Um, well... I agree with all of that. And I, I do see that my story, uh, I talk about it enough um, that it is it's not reassuring and it's very challenging in a in a in a way that I think particularly uh, innervates people. And it's interesting. I don't know if you remember the end of Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, but I read it ages ago. 
uh, it's a wonderful book. In the yeah. end, uh, the hero, the hero of the book, or the anti-hero of the book, comes out as a as a socialist, as a revolutionary. So, what are we going to do, Evan? Clearly, there's huge issues here. I mean, you've written lots of stuff about. You know, you even acknowledge that Trump got Harvard right. Is it just uh, a legal issue? Um, can the Supreme Court fix this by forcing Harvard to? behave itself and acknowledge the truths about itself? Or does it go beyond just Supreme Court um, uh, fixes, legal fixes? I think three things are going to have to happen. And actually, I'm not super optimistic about America on the whole, but I'm, I'm optimistic about change in this area. Uh, one is that we have to mobilize students to demand more from colleges. Um, so that means setting up some structure so that people can withhold donations uh, akin to what happened with apartheid in the 1970s and 80s, um, pushing the federal government to force the colleges to meet meaningful socioeconomic diversity metrics as a condition of receiving federal, uh, uh, federal funds and changing the narrative. And, and it is really an essential part of this that people understand that the story that they're telling um, is a myth. But aren't you just playing into then woke culture? I mean, the universities are very clever at retelling the story in their own interest and not changing anything. You mean, am I playing into them by sort of well, saying... You could have, I mean, it had, yeah. it, 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 what you just said could have been something that came out of a Princeton or a Harvard or a Yale seminar. Right. Um, well, I think we have to do much, much more by public colleges. Um, but I do think in the foreseeable future, I do think elite colleges promote a certain type of access to agenda setting professions like, you know, investment banking and management cult and management consulting. And I think it's right to think about diversifying who gets access to those um, particular opportunities because it'll be hard in the short term to fix that. I don't know when you say, could somebody say say what I just said in a seminar? Of course they could. Maybe an individual. I mean, a critical theory but I don't, seminar. I mean, yeah, I don't think the president that, of Harvard or Yale would say uh, that. Are you say. saying then that there needs to be di a divestment movement, which equates uh, Harvard or Yale or Princeton with apartheid South Africa? Um, I don't I think it. I think some piece of this advocacy is going to involve a movement like that. Um, I don't know that we have to say that Harvard and Yale and Princeton are racist, but they're extraordinarily classist. But unjust. I mean, but who's going to lead that? Michael Sandel? Where's he going to come from? Um, well, stay tuned. You? So. What? <laughs> stay tuned. <laughs> okay, well, that's one piece. I have to admit, I don't find that very convincing. What are the other two pieces? Um. I think there has to be some federal pressure from the federal government. So elite colleges mm -hmm. have received massive tax subsidies without any expectation uh, of return. And, and that has to change. And, and then there has to be some change about the narrative of merit and quality, um, exposing the myth of the idea that there are objective qualifications that um, students have to have to do the work at these schools. It's just, you know, the overwhelming majority, 99% of the applicants to these schools would succeed at these schools because basically everybody graduates from them. Yeah, and they're all guaranteed good grades once they get in. Um, Correct. 
What about the issue of their economic status? It's never entirely clear to me whether these are public or private institutions. The reality is they're a mix. Um, and of course, they're designed to bring more and more money in. Do we need to radically rethink what a university is in an a private university is in an in an economic sense? Um, well, the Supreme Court, you know, the a lot of people have paid attention to the um, the Harvard case, but there's a companion right. case the same day, which is against the University of North Carolina, and. It has two implications, two issues, either of which are really potentially devastating. So the if the Supreme Court ends race-based affirmative action, one thing it might do in the North Carolina cases, say that that applies equally to private and public institutions. Okay, so put that to one side. But another question in the North Carolina case is whether under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, institutions can give socioeconomic based tips. And that is potentially catastrophic, in my view, more catastrophic than ending race-based affirmative action, which is very bad for some reasons we can discuss. We did a show uh, last week with a Tufts University scholar, Natasha oh, Wariku. I'm sure you're familiar with her book as well. Her work is, a, is a, an industry around this now. Uh, is affirmative action fair? She's not necessarily a critic of affirmative action, but she believes in a more radical rethink of universities and just imagining them as a public good. So I guess in a kind of way, she's borrowing Sandel's communitarianism and trying to formally attach that to how the state thinks about university. Is there anything in that, Evan, or is that just too vague? Well, I'm a big fan of her work. And, and one thing that she talks about in her last book is the, um, the different narratives that people use to talk about um, affirmative action and the diversity um, frame, which is what's most commonly used, which is that everybody enriches the environment, um, the learning environment. Um, you know, it is also double-edged in that it says, hey, the, uh, you know, the rich lacrosse player is making an equally valuable contribution to the, uh, to the classroom. And what's getting lost in what the Supreme Court is about to do is the compelling compensatory justification for affirmative action, right? There are, there is, affirmative action is a, is a complicated uh, institution, but there are some students who have a clear, clearly compelling claim on affirmative action, where they are the direct descendants either of slavery or discrimination by these institutions. Yeah, it's complicated. Um, but the one thing that doesn't seem complicated is to attack legacy, the, 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 the legacy side of the, the business. You, you're very clear on that. I was talking to my daughter. I won't name drop her fancy school but she is at a fancy private school on the east coast and she was saying to me how she i don't know whether she's particularly sensitive or whether all the kids there do the same thing that she discriminates against legacy students she just assumes that if the other students there have parents who went to this same fancy college. They must be dim. Now, I said to her, well, they're not always dim. She said they generally are. So, so, so the legacy admission stuff is not only profoundly unjust, but creates misery, creates a weird kind of 
unspoken hierarchy that has to be gotten rid of doesn't it em? i mean there's i don't think there's anybody other than uh the leaders of these schools that defend the justice of uh of legacy at preference and and i i just want to push back on something you said earlier about student pressure i i disagree so i understand that you know um we're not going to get uh, ten billion dollars in pledges, um, you know, that will only be released to Harvard and Yale if, um, if they, you know, meet, increase, double their number of Pell Grant recipients or whatever. But I think if we could make a dent in the culture of giving, that elite colleges would have to take notice. And um, so, if all of a sudden they notice that, hmm. 10% fewer of our recent graduates are giving to us and giving to this alternative endowment. I think they would feel that that was something that have to be addressed. Now, whether they addressed it in a lip service kind of way, I can't really answer that. Um, but um, I, I actually think it could make a bigger dent than we might think. I mean, the issue is uh, changing the rules so that colleges don't let in kids of their former students as a way of generating more donations. I mean, that's the truth of it, isn't it? I but know that a friend of my wife's who will remain nameless, they all went to Stanford, he says, well, I'll just give them five grand a year because it might ultimately help my kids get into Stanford. It's not a lot of money for me and I'll just do it. Uh, that There has to be ways to make that illegal, isn't there? Make it illegal. Um, well, we could. I mean, make it illegal to 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 um, allow uh, to to, um, to give privilege to the children of of your graduates. Well, I'll say two things. One, we could no longer make it tax deductible. So the idea that somebody yeah, should yeah, but get this guy that, doesn't care about it being tax deductible. Well, he's a wealthy well, he's a wealthy man. So five thousand a year is meaningless. Well, we should undermine any any incentive he has to do that other than that's where he thinks his charitable dollars can best go. And that's what MIT does. MIT gives no advantage to legacies whatsoever. And MIT has an endowment of something like $25 billion. There's no evidence whatsoever and lots of evidence to the contrary that legacy preference has anything to do with alumni generosity. Interesting. And what about the more radical reforms. I, I talked to Werriker about this. Um, and I think the Dutch do this rather than the Danes. We always talk about how Denmark works. Uh, but let's uh, fetishize the Dutch for a moment. The, the idea of a lottery system that everyone can go to college and you throw your name in a hat and uh, you just go wherever you're lucky or unlucky enough to be selected. Could that work? Is it conceivable in an American context, Evan? I mean, is is it conceivable that it could work? A hundred percent. I mean, Michael Sandel makes that proposal in his most recent book, and and lots of people have advanced it. And um, you know, it's it's in some ways impossible to imagine an equitable scheme that didn't involve some amount of randomness. So the colleges would still screen for applicants that they deem qualified. Um, you know, imagine if uh, Harvard just had a, a lottery among all of the valedictorians in the United States. Now that would be a very socioeconomically and racially diverse class, right? Um, and would it be really, really good and filled with smart people? It would be. But then, but then how would Harvard be different from John Jay or from 
UMass or from East Texas College. Uh, I mean, and, 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 and as a consequence, is that a good or a bad thing? And, and what would it do to community colleges? It's complicated, isn't it? Well, well, I would argue that it would be much better. They would still be different, right? Because Harvard, schools could set different level of qualifications. So Harvard could fill its class just with valedictorians, whereas John Jay would have to, you know, fill its class with people who finished lower in their class. So there would still be status. Um, but it would reduce that disparity because everybody would understand that there was some luck involved in the process, which is the truth. I mean, your daughter is responding to a different type of luck. It's her classmates luck of the accident of birth of being born into a family. Right. And my, what my daughter does and plays this game, like all these privileged kids, is she can probably unconsciously at least transfer her own guilt about being privileged to a critique of an even more privileged class when she should be focusing uh -huh. on her own privilege. She won't be watching this, so I can say that publicly. Well, I hope she watches. Uh, finally, Evan, uh, we did a show with Steve Jones, a British academic, again, written, you probably read his book. And we asked him, what's the point of universities? And it seems to me talking to you there, there could be one. I mean, are universities factories for re-engineering re, re the injustice or justice of birth? Or are they places where you, you learn to be a citizen? Uh, or are those two things really the same? I think they're different, but I think they they that both things happen now, right? So right now they're, for the most part, elite colleges are just sort of laundering accidents, accidents of birth and, and giving you a fancy diploma and saying that you deserve your status. They do educate those people. And, and I mean, I think you see when you look at the data, real differences between college graduates and people who haven't gone to college at a host of metrics that matter to diversity. But, um, you know, you flash that article that I wrote um, which is really about the tax break that's afforded to um, to private universities. And the question is, because they're going to be taxed. Is that the Atlantic, which piece was that? The Atlantic piece or the, the, poli the political piece, the, the one the one with uh, what Trump got right. Right. So Trump imposed uh, an excise tax on universities and it created no opportunity whatsoever, as opposed to you know, could we leverage the tax break and say to the colleges that you have to you have to do good? And I think one of the reasons that Trump was able to so effectively uh, exploit the his critique of elites is that access to the elites is effectively, um, you know, the elite being an elite is effectively inaccessible to large swaths of the American population and it just engenders mistrust. And he is exhibit A, B, C, D, and E on there, yeah, isn't he? Sure. Not only did he obviously go to University of Pennsylvania, but he cheated to get in. Yeah, 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 yeah for sure. Well, it's interesting stuff. You seem to have read. Uh, you brought it all together. It's a really, really important argument. So congratulations on the new book, Poison Ivy, How Elite Colleges Divide Us. Everyone needs to read this. And it's a synthesis in some ways of all the other books. And in other ways, it's a very original take and an important take. Congratulations. I won't tease you about going to Harvard, Evan, but you did go and you were taught by Michael Sandel. Congratulations on that, too. Um, what else should people read these days? What are you reading? Maybe we've, we've talked enough about books on universities. Uh, I mentioned Scott Fitzgerald. What, what other books do you enjoy? Right. Um, well, I've spent like three years just kind of reading education stuff. So 
Um, Natasha What's Wark, the best book on it, apart from your own, do you think? Natasha Wark, whose book is, uh, I haven't read the most recent one yet, but her last book is terrific. Hmm. And a woman named, a sociologist named Lauren Rivera has a book called, called Pedigree. Uh, it's about hiring and investment banks and consulting firms. And it is, it will turn your stomach if you read it. Um, I'll have to and, get her on the show. What's her name? Uh, Lauren Rivera. She's terrific. And where does she teach? Not at Harvard, I hope. Yeah, sorry. No, it's um, at Michigan. Oh, dear. Uh, Northwestern. Um, That's not what Trump I'm... liver either, is it? Northwestern. <laughs> I'm, what, I'm so much more CUNY than uh, anything else. I mean, it's my whole family and it's my whole life. But, um, you know, it's like uh, it's like a stigma. You can't you can't wash it off your body once you have it. Uh, what else am I reading now? I'm a big Jonathan Haidt fan. Um, uh, yeah. I, well, his work's very important in this context too, I think. And I'm a, I'm very deeply concerned about um, cancel culture, and um, I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm worried about kind of uh, challenges to freedom of thought and speech in the academy, and um, the coddling of the American mind. I love Height's book, The Righteous Mind, but the coddling of the American mind is terrific. Um, and uh and then i i allowed myself to read some sci-fi after i finished my book so <laughs> i read neil stevenson's latest book i think that was the last thing that i read neil neil stevenson was on the show the one about the uh it's not about the metaverse uh i can't remember what it's called uh it was about it was a climate change novel um, yeah it was actually it's really really good um moderately hopeful but um net um you know Ned, I'm pretty worried about where things are in America. So 